Good morning, Calvary Church. We have said many times in our five years together that we either look at the culture through the lens of the Scriptures, or we look at the Scriptures through the lens of our culture. Now, tragically, too often, too many Christians inadvertently adopt the culture's understanding of a subject instead of the Scripture's understanding. And such was the case in Corinth. Some were denying the doctrine of the believer's bodily resurrection. And to the Corinthian worldview, this made perfect sense. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, the concept of a bodily resurrection was utterly unknown. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright explains it like this, quote, Who were the dead thought to be in the ancient pagan world? Well, they were beings that once had been embodied human beings, but were now souls, shades, or idoles, which would be like a phantom. Where were they? Most likely, they were in Hades, possibly in the Isle of the Blessed or Tartarus, and just conceivably, they may have been reincarnated into a different body altogether. That's what they thought. They might occasionally appear to living mortals. They might still be located somewhere near the vicinity of their tomb. But they were basically in a different world entirely. End quote. And so the Greco-Roman culture believed in the immortality of the soul, but, but not the body. So ingrained was this strongly held cultural belief that when the Apostle Paul preached at Mars Hill at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, he had the audience's attention keenly until bodily resurrection was mentioned. The Bible says in Acts 17.32, at that point in his sermon, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. That was the point where they stopped following along. You see, the accepted Neoplatonic philosophy and the emerging Gnostic heresy taught that the physical was evil and the spiritual, that was good. And that is how pagan background Corinthians would have understood the afterlife. Indeed, even among some Jewish background Corinthians, particularly those of the Sadducees, they would see things the same way. Uh, There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if you remember, in Jesus' day. And the Pharisees rightly took the Bible at face value. They took the Bible basically literally. And therefore, they believed in a bodily resurrection. Why? Because even the oldest book of the Bible, chronologically, that is the book of Job, even the oldest book of the Bible teaches a bodily, not just spiritual, resurrection. The Bible says in Job 19.26, And after my skin has been destroyed, that is, I'm dead, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Uh, The oldest book of the Bible, and in many instances throughout the Bible, had the understanding of a bodily resurrection. But those of the Sadducees, well, they they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in angels and demons, and indeed, in 
bodily resurrection. So the early church got in hot water from the Sadducees, who were more interested in their status in the wider society than in biblical fidelity. And we see this in places like Acts chapter 4, where the Bible says Peter and John uh, were speaking to the people, but then the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now remember, the Sadducees were the epistemological rationalists of the day. The Sadducees composed sort of the aristocracy on the priestly order. They were theological compromisers, cozying up to Rome for power in the temple complex. And since they were such, they became the theological liberals. They rejected the uncomfortable. They rejected the countercultural. They rejected the literal teaching of the Bible. And instead, they readily adopted the position of the culture on these matters. And so, some Jewish background believers and virtually all of the pagan background believers at Corinth would have a strong cultural bias against the biblical doctrine of the believer's bodily resurrection. And sadly, this church, at least some in this church, were were letting their culture dictate over and against the Scriptures. The culture said, our body is a prison and the Spirit needs liberation. But the Christian position is radically different. The Christian position is that all that Adam lost due to sin, indeed due to sinful defiance, Christ redeems through perfect obedience. Christ therefore not only defeats sin and death, but Christ shall redeem our very bodies from sin and death. In fact, just as Jesus rose bodily, so too shall we as Christ's followers. But, but sadly, some in the church of Corinth believe, well, well, Jesus rose bodily. They seem not to be too troubled by that. But somehow that wasn't going to be true for me and you. Paul is appalled at this adoption of the culture's view and firmly and forcefully reasserts the Scripture's view in our text today. And he's going to lay out his case in three ways. First, Paul lays out several critical implications if there is no bodily resurrection. That's in verses 12 through 19. And then he makes forceful assertions regarding the believer's bodily resurrection. He does that in verses 20 through 32. But lastly, and this is the part that folks don't often come to, but it's very important, he makes a practical application regarding the believer's bodily resurrection, and he does that in just two verses. Everything culminates into those two verses, verses 33 and 34. And as that is the structure of of the Scripture, of Paul's thinking, it's going to be the structure of my preaching this morning. And so if you would turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to start at verse 12. And as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time in His text today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to You as as Lord of the church, and we come to You 
in, in holy reverence to Your holy Word. And we ask that You would speak to us today. That we would have a bedrock understanding of the implications and reality of the believer's bodily resurrection, but also that we would see the connection to the practicality that Paul points out that we often miss when we delve into dense doctrinal issues. And lastly, Lord, many of us today don't necessarily have a challenge with the believer's bodily resurrection. We don't necessarily have a Greco-Roman view of life. And yet, we commit this same problem. We will allow our culture to trump our Scripture. We are so immersed in the world squeezing us into its mold that we will often uncritically adopt and unbiblically adapt the pure, unadulterated teaching of the literal Word of God to suit the spirit of the age. And so I pray, Lord, that not only will we understand where we stand on the believer's bodily resurrection with absolute certainty, but that we might embrace the application in its entirety and contextualize it in a way that is timely. Indeed, for such a time as this. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, well, well they've perished. And if, only, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, well, we're of all people most to be pitied then. But in fact, here's the good news, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all in Christ be made alive. But each to his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? 
I protest, brothers, uh, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If, If the dead are not raised, well then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. That is our text today. Uh, To dispel the heresy that you and I as Christians will not rise bodily, the Apostle Paul helps us all by first pointing out the critical implications of believers not having a bodily resurrection. What would be true if that were true? Now, it's not true, but if it were true, what would it mean for Christianity if the believer did not rise bodily? And that brings us to point one on our outlines today. What are the implications if there is no bodily resurrection for believers? What are the implications if there is no bodily resurrection for believers? And Paul uses seven ifs in eight verses, to show the implications of our situation if there is no bodily resurrection for believers. And these ifs allow the apostle to riff about the steep cliff which would leave our faith adrift if it were true. And he lists seven critical implications if believers do not experience bodily Resurrection, And they're going to comprise letters A through G in our outlines today. We're going to go through them rapidly because I want to get to the other matters beyond the hypothetical to the actual. But hypothetically, here are the seven implications. If there is no bodily resurrection for believers, then Christianity is baseless, our preaching is senseless, our faith is useless, and that brings us to letter A today. The implication, the first implication, if there is no bodily resurrection for the Christian, is that Christianity is baseless. Christianity is baseless. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And and if Christ has not been raised, then we are still dead in our sins, friends. Remember, this is the Gospel. Just before 1 Corinthians 15.12 was 1 Corinthians 15.1-11. And we learned that this is the Gospel. That Christ died for our sins. That He was buried. And that He was raised on the third day. Romans 6 is quite clear on this. Either the resurrection, either there is resurrection power for us to walk in newness of life, Or there is not. It's either or. Romans 6 says this, We were buried therefore with Him in baptism unto death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too might we walk in newness of life. The power to overcome uh, the, 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 the yearnings of the flesh comes from the resurrected power of the living Christ in us. If there is no bodily resurrection 
The first implication is that Christianity is baseless, and that brings us to the second, letter B. Letter B is this. If there is no bodily resurrection, not only is Christianity baseless, but our preaching is useless. Our preaching is senseless. Our preaching is senseless. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. In vain. It's senseless. It has no purpose to it. If our preaching is senseless, then friends, our belief in that preaching, well, that would be useless. If the preaching is senseless, then our belief in that preaching is useless. And that's letter C. If there is no bodily resurrection for believers, then our faith is useless. This is all pointless. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Not only is our faith useless, but if there is no bodily resurrection of believers, then friends, that means the apostles, that means they were false witnesses, and that's letter D. If there is no bodily resurrection, the implication is the apostles were false witnesses. We see this in verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. False witnesses. Because we testified about God. And they died that He raised Christ whom He did not raise. It is true that the dead are not raised. That is, if there's no resurrection, then the apostles are false witnesses in testifying of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if the apostles are false witnesses and the Gospel is useless because Christianity is baseless, then letter E becomes our reality. And that is this. Our situation is hopeless. Our situation is hopeless. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. You see, the Bible teaches that Jesus reversed the curse by taking on our sin. And the way that we know that Jesus wasn't just a well-intentioned religious enthusiast, but rather, He was the Lamb of God, the Anointed One of God, the One who would forever take away sin. Well, we know that He was who He said He was because He did what He said He would do. He did what He predicted. We know that Jesus conquered sin and death because He overcame death. He overcame the grave. He rose bodily, victoriously, physically, visibly from death. Paul opens the book of Romans with how Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By His resurrection from the dead. By His resurrection from the dead. But if Jesus didn't resurrect, then we're still dead in our sins. Either we know for certain that Jesus' death satisfied God's wrath, or we don't. And the way we know for certain that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin is by Jesus rising victoriously, gloriously, bodily, visibly. And that is why we sing, living He loved me, dying He saved me, buried He carried my sins far away, rising he justified me freely forever. One day He's coming. Oh, glorious 
day. But if there is no bodily resurrection, then Jesus' ability to propitiate our iniquity has no evidentiary validity. And that means that all those who have died with their faith in Christ have simply perished. And that brings us to letter F. The final implication, one of the final implications in our passage, is letter F, our fallen brothers are condemned to eternal lostness. If there is no bodily resurrection for the Christian, then our fallen brothers are condemned to eternal lostness. We see this in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, well, they've perished. And if our fallen brothers are condemned to eternal lostness, if their faith is useless because Christianity is baseless and the apostles are false witnesses, then the implication in our situation is letter G. And it is this. All of our kingdom investments, all of our kingdom investments and all of our personal sacrifices are worthless. If there is no bodily resurrection of the dead, then, then our kingdom investments and our personal sacrifices are worthless. And we see this in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, there is no bodily resurrection, there is no glorious future for the Christian, then he says that we of all people are most to be pitied. Our kingdom investments and our personal sacrifices, my friends, are rendered worthless. If Christ has not been raised, then think about it. Every time we turned the other cheek, every time we went the extra mile, every time we made eternal investments and forewent temporal enjoyment, well, we were basically rubes and dupes. But the good news is verse 20, my friends. But in fact, but in fact, not in theory, in fact, Christ has been, has been raised. From the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Which brings us from the hypothetical to the actual. Starting in verse 20, the Bible shifts from the ifs to the gift of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to point two on our outlines today. Point two on our outlines. Why does the Bible so strongly make the assertion? That there is a bodily resurrection for the Christian. Why does the Bible so strongly make the assertion that there is a bodily resurrection for the Christian? And that brings you to letter A today. And the reason is simply this. Because it is historically true. It is not legendary. Why does the Bible so strongly make the assertion there is a bodily resurrection for the Christian? And the answer is because it is historically true. It is not legendary. Verse 20, but in fact, not in faith, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Historians tell us there was a man named Jesus. Uh, he was crucified by, by Pontius Pilate at the behest of the Jewish authorities. He, he claimed to be the Son of God, and he promised to rise on the third day. And, and the Romans wanted to quell people's belief in Jesus. The Jews wanted to quell people's belief in Jesus. So they made a pact together to secure his body. And when they did, lo and behold, the tomb was empty anyway. Now, his beleaguered believers were in no emotional condition to conspire to overpower those Roman guards. 
Indeed, they had no personal or financial incentive to perpetuate the myth that Jesus rose from the dead. And indeed, all but one of those men would be martyred. That is, they would be murdered for refusing to recant that they had seen the resurrected Christ. The sole soul who was not murdered, well, he was sequestered to live in exile in the Isle of Patmos and die alone. These men, they had every opportunity, they had every incentive to recant, but they would not. Why not? Because they had seen the resurrected Jesus. Not just once, not just, you know, kind of dimly and ethereally. They saw him visibly and bodily. You could eat breakfast on the beach with resurrected Jesus. And indeed, they did. Uh, you could put your finger into the wounds in his side. You could see those in his feet and hands. And indeed, one of them, Thomas, did. You have Jesus' brother, James. Now, James was a skeptic through Jesus' entire life. He was not a believer in Jesus as the Messiah the whole life of his brother. But James, history tells us, became the absolute pillar of the Jerusalem church after Jesus' death. Why? Because he saw the resurrected Jesus. Then, then you have people like, like Saul of Tarsus, Saul, the pernicious and tireless persecutor of the early church, he's radically transformed into Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. Why? Because he saw the resurrected Jesus. Millions of people throughout the world have been set free from addictions and afflictions because he lives. And so Bill Gaither got it right. God sent his son... And they called Him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. And an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. And because I know He holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. Friends, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the Father's amen to the Son's it is finished. Which brings us to letter B, you see. Why does the Bible so strongly make the assertion that there is a bodily resurrection for the Christian? Well, firstly, because it's historically true, not legendary. But letter B, because it is soteriologically necessary. This is going to test your ability to spell. Soteriologically necessary. It comes from the Greek word uh, that, that has to do with salvation. Soteriologically necessary. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death. That is, death came into the world through Adam's disobedience. By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Death came through a man, the first man, Adam. The last man reverses the curse and overcomes the death. For as in Adam all die, verse 22, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What is automatic, we all get our humanity from Adam. Therefore we get our sin nature. Therefore we get the fact 
that the wages of sin is death. But in Christ, there is hope. In Christ, there is life. The question is, are you in Christ? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Like it or not, there is a solidarity within humanity. The human race is infected with the disease of sin, the Bible teaches. Adam's decision in the garden regarding rebellion has created in each of us an unquenchable lust to go astray each in our own way. Which is why Paul can write, no one is righteous, no not one. Which is why Isaiah can write, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the prophet Isaiah not only gave us the grim description of our situation, but he also gave us God's prescription for our emancipation. You see, Isaiah 53.6, which starts out with the bad news, well, it moves to the good news. The bad news is that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned his own way. But the good news is, and so the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus' bodily resurrection is soteriologically necessary. It's necessary that you and I can be saved. Verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is He your Lord? Have you asked Him to be Lord of your life? Not only is Jesus' resurrection soteriologically necessary, it is also chronologically illustratory. It is chronologically illustratory. Let me show you what I mean by that. I want you to look at verse 23. And you're going to see chronology in verse 23. The Bible says, but each in its own order. That's chronology. But each in its own order. And then it gives an illustration. Because it is chronologically illustratory. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then, at His glorious coming, those who belong to Christ. There's a batting order. Jesus was raised first as the firstfruits. And you and I in Christ will be raised as the final piece of that promise. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. What does that mean? That means Christ's past is our future. And the word first fruits in the Greek is op uh, arche, which refers to the, to the very first sample of an agricultural crop's yield, indicating the nature and the quality of the rest of the crop that is to come. Jesus' resurrection is a foretaste of what our resurrection bodies will be like. Now, we know a little bit about first fruits already from the Old Testament. The Israelites were instructed to bring their first fruits of their crops, indeed the firstborn of their cattle, as an offering to the Lord, saying, just as you're going to provide all the rest, I'm giving the first and the best to you. God commanded this in places in the Old Testament like Leviticus 23.10 and Exodus 34.19. 
And, and basically, offering was a token. It was a symbol that, that the whole harvest belonged to God. By giving the first fruits, you were saying all of it belongs to God. All of it is His gift. And I praise Him and thank Him for giving me any of it. Now, put that in the context of Jesus and His resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was incredible, but because of it, our resurrection is inevitable and undeniable. If He's the first fruits and He arose gloriously, victoriously, and bodily, then we in Christ, one day when Christ comes for us, we will be raised gloriously, visibly, bodily. Now, that means the chronology is not finished. And that brings us to letter D today. The Bible so strongly makes the assertion that there is a bodily resurrection for the Christian. D. Because it is eschatologically mandatory. The Bible uh, makes such a, a strong assertion that there is a bodily resurrection for the Christian because, letter D, it is eschatologically necessary. The eschaton is the end times, the last things. It is necessary for the completion of God's perfect program in the universe that no man can thwart. I want you to look at verse 24. And then comes the end. The eschaton, the teleos, the purpose of everything. And then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. Jesus will deliver the kingdom of God to the Father and after destroying every rule and every authority and every power that tried to usurp it. Isn't it interesting, my friends, that the Son of God, who has no inferiority within the rest of the Trinity, He's just as much God as God the Spirit, and God the Father is God the Son. Isn't it interesting that God the Son, who has absolutely no inferiority with the rest of the Trinity, for God the Son is equal to all the members of the Trinity. Nonetheless, I want you to see that God the Son, well, He responds in humility when He delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after He destroys every rule and every authority and every power. Verse 25, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. There's this movement of a, of a final, ultimate, on earth rule of Christ on earth, which many see as the millennium. Uh, the, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That after the millennium, we'll, we'll do away with death entirely. People will still die in the millennium. They'll live to be a very long age if they walk with God, but they can still die. But coming is a day where there's no more death. The eternal state. Verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. That is, Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. That God the Father is not in subjection to God the Son in this sense. And when all things are subjected to Him, then what? The Son, who is worthy, in humility Himself, will also allow Himself to be subjected back to God the Father, who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. That is some heavy theology here. Jesus is the God of all glory, and He shall receive all glory. We may not see it every day, every way today, but we will see it one day because it's true. Indeed, as the angels proclaim in Revelation 7 in heaven, the Bible says they're saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And it's just as Paul describes in Ephesians 1.1, that in Christ, 
We were chosen. Having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. That's going to include coronavirus, isn't it? That's going to include quarantine, isn't it? That that somehow, in some way, God is bringing some people to faith in Christ that this was the best way to do that. This might be the only way in our side of understanding how God would get their attention by shaking the very foundations of everything to help them see that they are nothing and Jesus is everything. That in Christ we were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. We're not the end-all, be-all in salvation. We're just one more cog in the wheel that brings glory to the One who deserves it and that is Jesus Christ. We shall have resurrected bodies. Why? So we can bring the Lord of our bodies, glory forever in eternity. Further, the Bible so strongly asserts the believer's bodily resurrection because of letter E. Because it is behaviorally evidentiary. That is, why is it making such a strong assertion? How can Paul know with such certainty that the Christian will be resurrected bodily? And he looks at the behavior of believers in the early church testifying that believers are supposed to believe in the bodily resurrection of the church. What do I mean by behaviorally evidentiary? Well, I want you to look at Arabic 1 in our outline. Subpoint 1 under letter E. We can see evidence for the believer's belief in our bodily resurrection in the church's decision for us to be baptized publicly. We see evidence for the believer's belief. They believed in the bodily resurrection of the Christian. We see that because they were willing to be baptized publicly. Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, I'm going to admit to you that verse 29 is one of the harder verses in the Bible to interpret. Some have argued that baptism on behalf of the dead is what the Corinthians did in error. And Paul was simply saying, people do it. He doesn't say we do it. The problem with that line of thinking is Paul is not one who typically promotes error even when he's trying to teach something larger. And the problem is there's no other Scripture that supports baptism for the dead, not even one. And the Bible tells us that salvation is never by works, and so this can't work. Salvation is always by grace. Given that the New Testament goes to great lengths to say that each of us must personally believe and then be baptized, I think it cannot mean vicarious baptism on behalf of the dead. If the dead person didn't believe in Christ and then we get baptized, they're saved. That's not what this passage is teaching and the Mormons are wrong in their understanding and assertion of this passage. That's why they do all the genealogies to find out who the relatives are, to have a baptism on behalf of the dead so that that person in the spirit world can make a choice. No, your choice is fixed. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And we go on to face the judgment. So you must make your choice while you can hear this voice. The Lord Jesus loves you and He died for you and you must embrace Him now. Because the day is coming when our choices are fixed. So it can't mean that they were baptized on behalf of dead people who didn't believe. It could mean 
Some saints got baptized on behalf of genuine believers who had special circumstances that prohibited them from being baptized. Perhaps uh, like the thief on the cross who died before he could be baptized, perhaps it's on their behalf. Perhaps someone is infirm and elderly and sick. Perhaps you live in a part of the world where it's very cold in the winter and there was no way to get baptized because you were already infirm. That could be what's happening. But I think most likely it comes down to how you translate the preposition who pair. You see, the preposition who pair has other renderings that make a lot more sense biblically and in Paul's teaching here. You see, one of the ways who pair can be taken is to mean concerning. Used many times in Scripture uh, of concerning instead of on behalf of. So the verse would be speaking about how you and I are baptized concerning death. That would make total sense in this passage. There'd be nothing theologically wonky there at all. Meaning, why would any believer individually choose the emblematic action of baptism, which symbolically represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and how we identify that we have been died in our sins and we've been resurrected to newness of life, just as Christ died and was resurrected. So the believer is saying the same thing. That seems to be the most plausible way to take verse 29. That Paul is saying that we're baptized concerning death. That just as we pictorially express to the whole community that I have died to the old man and I've been raised to newness of life and I showed everyone that in my baptism. I think that's what verse 29 is driving at. But however you interpret verse 29, Paul's logic is very clear and so don't miss it. If we didn't believe in the bodily resurrection, nobody would get baptized at all. If you didn't believe that there was a connection, then you wouldn't be expressing that through this action. Secondly, number two, we can see evidence for the believer's belief in our bodily resurrection in the early church's decision to suffer mightily and to continuously put their lives in jeopardy. I'm going to say it again, then I'm going to unpack it. We see evidence that the early church had an unshakable belief in the believer's bodily resurrection. Why? Because they constantly put their bodies in positions to be destroyed. The early church's decision to suffer mightily and put their lives in jeopardy clearly witnessed that they believed there was more than just this life. Why would Paul risk his life for the gospel in this life if this life is all there is. That's what he's asking. Listen to his logic starting in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Paul's saying, why do I go out and do this when I constantly get beat up and one day I'll get killed for it? Verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. I give up all kinds of pleasure because I see that there's something greater. Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus. Now, he's speaking in metaphor here. When Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, he was writing it from Ephesus. And at Ephesus, Paul was facing super strong opposition on a daily basis. In 1 Timothy 4, he speaks of the strong opposition of one particular person, Alexander the metalworker, and how the Lord stood beside me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He views these uh, people attacking and persecuting and trying to silence him like beasts who want to take him to his death. Number three, number three, lastly, 
We can see evidence for the believer's belief in our bodily resurrection in the early church's decision, well, to die daily instead of live hedonistically. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but my pride is in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Jesus said, take up my cross and die to self. There are things that we want to do as believers in our flesh that if all that mattered was this world, then we would eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But we live differently because we understand the weight of eternity. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, Christians foregoing certain momentary pleasures do so because they understand there is a bodily resurrection for the Christian. Therefore, this life is not all there is to live for. All the injunctions of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount are predicated on the fact that this life is not all they're lived for. So Jesus can say, do this hard thing, do that hard thing, deny yourself this thing. Why? For great shall be your reward later in heaven. Uranos in the Greek. That there is more in store for the Christian than this moment in its momentary pleasures. Paul now comes to the bit that we tend to skip. We tend, if we get in this passage, to deal with all the heavy theology because it's powerful and amazing. But we miss his point. Paul has a pastoral application. And that brings us to point three of our sermon today. Don't miss it. It's the climax and culmination of all that he was writing for in chapter 15. What is the practical application for the biblical reality of the believer's bodily resurrection? What is the practical application for the biblical reality of the bodily resurrection of the Christian. Well, look at verse 33. Here it is. He says, don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. He's saying it to the church. He's saying some of you are living so lowly and corroding with those who, who drag you away. And I say this to your shame. The, the practical application of the biblical reality of the believer's bodily resurrection is that we should wake up from our drunken stupor, from the strong intoxication of our culture that tells us to live for us and not go on sinning. Why? Well, because our bodies are temples, he told us earlier in the epistle. Facilitating our worship of Jesus. They're not sewers to pollute in our own pursuits. Our bodies are holy vessels. They're not carnal carnivals. Which he told us quite clearly in several chapters earlier in this epistle. Therefore, friends, who we put ourselves in proximity to will affect our affections and our activities. We talk about social distancing to hold back the coronavirus. You have a circle, and you should, you should be willing to reach the lost. Jesus was a friend to sinners. I'm not saying don't have non-Christian friends. You should. I'm not saying don't have people that are evangelistically in your life. Don't, don't love people because they're people. That's all great. But there is an element where iron sharpens iron. And who you allow into your inner circle forms how you respond to the world around you. And bad company ruins good morals. Paul says. So the question for every Christian is, do I, do the people I permit into my inner circle 
Well, do they make me closer to Jesus or do they draw me farther from Jesus? Do they, do they bring me closer to Jesus or do they draw me farther from Jesus? Proverbs 12.26, Old Testament, says this, A righteous man is cautious in his friendships, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Proverbs 13.20, Wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. You see, bad company leads to bad morals. If you allow in your inner circle vipers and vultures and self-centered folks, you're probably going to become a self-centered folk. You're going to think it's normal to be a self-centered Christian instead of a Christ-centered Christian. So Christian, in the midst of social distancing, you still have people in your life. Who are you walking with this week? The wise or the wicked? The Christ-seeker or the hell-raiser? Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. In the church at Corinth, there were people who called themselves Christians, but their doctrine denied the clear teaching of the Bible. And then their living will it tarnish the witness of the entire church. They claimed to be Christians. They had some affiliation with the Corinthian congregation. But in truth, Paul writes, they have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Now, for most of us today, our challenge is not that we deny the believer's bodily re resurrection. Um, maybe we misunderstand, but, but for the most part, I don't see today that being the problem of the modern church. Our challenge is their challenge, and that is, we don't look at the culture through the lens of Scripture. We look at the Scripture through the lens of our culture. Our culture believes a child is a choice, and its life has value not from conception, but only by my decision. The culture says one thing, the Scripture says another. Which do you believe? Our culture believes that, that equality of worth means we must have equality of rule. But Jesus doesn't. He's fully equal in divinity and dignity, and yet He submits in our passage for the Father's glory. He does this in humility. He says, I'll take a lesser role even though I'm equal in worth. Our culture believes that church is optional. But God's Word says it's essential. So essential that we should not forsake the gathering together of the saints, but instead we should encourage one another daily lest the deceitfulness of sin creep in. Right now, we have to do that virtually. We have to call our brothers and sisters and encourage them and text them and send them things that encourage them to walk with Jesus in these times of isolation. But one day the doors will be open. So will the beaches. So will the T-ball league. There's the culture and its view of the weekend and the Scripture in its view of the Lord's day. The, the culture believes that, that he who dies with the most toys wins. But Christ commands us to lay up our treasures in heaven. Our culture believes that man is the measure of all things. I get to decide what's true. There's a way that's true for me, and there may be a way that's true for you. But the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through the Son. 
Our culture believes that nothing plus nothing equals everything. That slime over time moved from goo to the zoo to you. But the Bible declares in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and you were knit in your mother's womb in the image of God. My question for you, Christian, isn't about resurrected bodies. I hope that is very clearly answered. My question is, what competing voice has lordship in your mind today? Which voice are you soaking in? Which are you meditating on? The Scripture or the culture? Because we need to remember that bad company ruins good morals, but there is a pure, unadulterated Word from God. And so are we washing our minds in the Word of God daily, or are we being conformed by the squeezing of our culture? I'm going to leave you with a different Scripture. Here are the facts, my friends. Christ has been raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 makes that gloriously clear. And one day Christ shall judge the living and the dead. And in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. But instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. And they will turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. It's not going to be easy. Do the work of an evangelist. People need Jesus. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. And you don't have to be in vocational ministry for that to be true for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that though the world squeezes us, the Word transforms us. We thank You that though this world will be rolled up like a scroll, that Your Word stands forever. We thank You that truth is not a proposition ultimately, but a person. Because Jesus is the truth. And we pray that many would come to that truth. That they would make Jesus the Lord of their life. That they would savor the Savior and that we could treasure together the glories that are due Your name. Perhaps you're here today and you're seeing that the Word of God is true. And the Son of God is Jesus. And the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And you want to know, how can I make peace with God? And the answer is, Jesus made peace for you on the cross. And the Bible says that it is the free gift of God. That all you must do is believe and you shall be saved. Now what should you believe? You must believe the historical content of the predicted Christ. That He is very God. That He left heaven and became a man. That He was tempted in all points and yet no sin was found in Him. He did something that you and I cannot do. Being God, He resisted sin. And then He made a once and for all sacrifice because He was infinitely tested. You and I, we fail. We, we're tested up to a certain point. We can't take it anymore and we give in. But the Son of God was tested. And He was tested in always past. He was infinitely tested because He was infinitely righteous. 
And then He voluntarily, substitutionally, vicariously went to the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to die in our sin. And if you believe that Jesus died and that He was raised and He's the Son of God and you are willing to say, Jesus, would you be my Lord? He will make you your Lord today and forever. And if you'd like to do that, you can pray with me right here, right now. Your prayer can be expressed like this. Father, forgive me for I am a sinner. And I need a Savior. And I know there's no other name under heaven by which I may be saved. That the way to the Father is through the Son. And so, I want to give you my life such that it is that you would make me into your Son, into your servant, into your committed disciple, and that you would fan into flame gifts in my life that bring glory to your name. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.